The May holidays are fast approaching. As you can see right now, among the stations, particularly the bus stations in China, that the Chinese nationals are getting busy with their own travelings. But meanwhile, this year also signifies another important aspect from the diplomatic perspective. Now, needless to say, regarding the role of China, the countries in Europe are heavily divided. Now, only more international diplomats are making their ways to one of the largest economies in the world, and also they're hungry in building and strengthening the relationship with the Chinese nationals or the Chinese officials. In this episode, we are going to talk about why the European nations are so divided regarding the role of China, and how about the Chinese politics and also the Chinese economy. Is China going to be the only solution to save the planet or the world? Hey everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Well, in this episode, Will is going to talk about how the China is gearing up for its own economic growth and also for this political influence in a greater way. And hope you enjoy the show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite Again, if you're familiar with our show, our distinguished speaker, which is Professor Mark Lenton. Now, Professor Lenton teaches in political science and including international relations, comparative politics, including the countries such as China, Asia Pacific, and Oceania, and polar regions. And he covers issues such as security studies and a comparative political economy. Well, Professor Mark, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Thank you. Well, Professor Mark, it's been a while since we had our conversation last time. Again, as we mentioned before, one of the critical issues that everyone is talking about today is the nations today in Europe are heavily divided because of the presence of China. Recently, French President Emmanuel Macron, along with the President of Europe, uh, a European Commission, paid a short visit to China. Of course, that really raised the eyebrows across the continent. Professor Mark, from your perspective, how should we evaluate Macron's trip this time to China? And also, how should we understand the effort that he endeavored during this meeting between he and the Chinese leader? Well, as Bob Dylan famously quoted, things have changed, especially in regards to uh, Europe, the United States and China these days. Since China began to emerge from its zero COVID lockdown, been trying to restore a great deal of trade, uh, international discourse, many European governments have tried to jumpstart relations with Beijing primarily for economic reasons. We mm. could point to, for example, Germany and some other European Union members. Mm. But you're absolutely right. It was the trip by uh, President Emmanuel Macron of France that has been getting most of the press right now, which is understandable. What the United States has been trying to do is to ensure um, a considerable amount of unity regarding the Taiwan situation. So that includes Europe, that includes Japan, Korea. And what President Macron did was basically say, look, we understand the situation, but we are not destined to simply follow behind the United States mm -hmm. in every kind of security endeavor. 
And that obviously got quite a bit of attention because, as you point out, that would seem to suggest that Europe is not on the same page when it comes to Asia-Pacific security. It was watched very closely in China. It got considerable amount of coverage in the Chinese press. Mm. And it did cause quite a bit of frustration in the U.S. because the U.S. has been trying to say, look, there is a sizable number of countries that are very much united on the fact that Taiwan security is a priority. Professor Mark, I want to read you that something again during the uh, visit or prior to the visit, the president of the European Commission stated this way, and I quote, China is more repressive at home and more assertive abroad, where security and the control trump all other concerns that is quick to use political and economic coercion, trying to explore the very dependency of other countries on China. Now, again, Professor Mark, help us to understand, we know that today, when we talk about the rule of China, politically speaking and also economically speaking, there's no denying that China is generating much greater noises, given the fact that today Xi Jinping has already maneuvered so much towards his political and also economic ambition. By, but when we listen to the statement from the president of the European Commission, China is more repressive at home and more assertive abroad. What message does that send to the nations in Europe? And what is she or what was she insinuating behind the statement? Yeah, these are good points. And it really kind of underlines the fact that Europe is trying to address two different realities regarding China at the same time. On one hand, yes, there is general acknowledgement across Europe that China's internal political situation has certainly become more authoritarian, that there are very, very strong concerns about human rights, about uh, the erosion of the rule of law. But this is being coupled with the idea that China is still a major economic player, one which has been out of commission for a very long time because of COVID, one which is emerging, and very few European governments are willing to risk uh, trade with China uh, under these kinds of circumstances, especially with a lot of European economies facing some very difficult, at least short-term situation with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, with concerns about inflation, about debt, and just about uh, issues regarding global trade as a whole. There have mm-hmm. been a lot of concerns about recession. There's been a lot of concerns that we might be seeing a closing in of the economic system. So these are the two choices that many European governments are having to deal with now. Professor Mark, back in the days, again, not too long ago, when former U.S. President Donald Trump was in the White House, and again, everyone was very concerned regarding this relationship between China and the U.S., and one phrase that came out back and forth is called decoupling. But now today, there's another term that came out recently. It's called de-risking. Now, what is the China policy from the European nation side today, and how should we understand the narrative from decoupling to de-risking, not just about the U.S., but also uh, the countries in Europe in general? What do you say to that? Yeah, like to start off with the concept of decoupling, like it's a very kind of anodyne phrase to suggest that a economic relationship between the United States and China worth well north of 550 billion American per year in trade can simply be severed without any kind of major backlash. Now, I'm not an economist, but even I would say uh, the economic implications of that would be profound, not just between the two countries. Now, there has been a lot of suggestion about you refer to de-risking. Uh, related to that is also friendshoring. That okay, we will rebuild networks, but only amongst uh, friends and trustworthy countries. So, what this all kind of leads up to is 
the possibility of still greater balkanization of the international trade system. And it really shows that risk is starting to become much more profound, uh, especially in areas of vital trade. We're seeing this right now, for example, with energy, as well as with key resources. Mm -hmm. So it really demonstrates the fact that the old days of globalization are really starting to give way to a perceived new pragmatism. Professor Mark, again, you mentioned regarding the region of Taiwan. Now, I want to read something to you that when French President Emmanuel Macron was questioned regarding the issue between Taiwan and mainland China, and this is what he said, and I quote, I am neither Taiwan nor the U.S. As a good stoic, I can only deal with what depends on me. One does not have to mix up everything. Now, how should we understand the statement? Was Emmanuel Macron dodging the bullets or dodging the question because he surely did not want to savage the relationship between him and the Xi Jinping or perhaps between the two countries? What do we make of that? I think there were a few reasons behind his statements. First of all, uh, the domestic situation in France is, to put it politely, very unstable at the moment. There have been a series of protests over pension reform, a lot of domestic economic concerns. And I think one of the reasons why uh, the president made his statements uh, was to assure the French public that, okay, we're not going to engage in adventurism uh, that far outside of Europe. I think this also reflects the fact that France traditionally, we can go as far back as de Gaulle and possibly even further, that France has always tried to maintain a certain distance Mm. from the United States in regarding security affairs, and that includes within NATO. So this could be considered to be relatively in character of this sort of independent streak when it comes to French security thinking. But it also reflects his view, and we can debate whether that's also the view of the French political establishment, that the stakes regarding Taiwan are not as crucial to European interests as they are in the United States mindset. And we can certainly argue and debate that because there are a lot of arguments to the contrary. Mm. Again, Professor Mark, these days, more international diplomats are making their ways to China. Again, we're looking at the leaders from the European countries and Central America presidents and, of course, nations in Southeast Asia. Now, what do we say about the Chinese uh, a nation for this international status? When we look at all those international diplomats made their ways or making their ways to China, does that mean Chinese economy today is making the ripple effects or Xi Jinping is generating much greater noises, politically speaking and also um, economically speaking? What do you say to that? Well, the kind of starting point would be, okay, this again reflects the fact that China is the second largest economy in the world. It is a major factor in global trade. And the fact that many countries are seeking a return to China to jumpstart diplomatic relations reflects that. But I think it also is reflective of the fact that China was in isolation for more than two years, that we had very limited diplomatic contact during that period. So many governments are simply wanting to get an idea of what is happening on the ground, not only in regards to the Chinese economy, but also the Chinese political system. Like, where is everyone standing? But meanwhile, Professor Mark, a a lot of experts believe that the relationship between U.S. and China will never be restored uh, back to good old days. So in other words, when we look at this growth of Chinese economy and also the influence of the Chinese leaders or Chinese, uh, again, the Communist Party, How much do you think that we are trying to, or when I say we, we mean the countries around the world, are trying to understand that without U.S., China might be the better solution? Because given the fact that today we're looking at the political polarization taking place in the U.S., so what do you say to that? 
Yes, I think the big change uh, on the question of whether U.S.-China relations will be restored to, let's say, five, ten years ago. The fact is China's growth economically, politically, strategically is not where it was five, ten years ago. The difference in power between the United States and China is very significant. Like it is narrowing significantly, I should say. Now, China still has a lot of internal economic and other issues to deal with. I mean, certainly we're not talking about China having solved all of its uh, socioeconomic travails, but mm. the gap between U.S. and Chinese power is seen as narrowing. Now, American power is also certainly very robust at the moment, but as you say, there is a lot of concern about what the next administration is going to be in Washington, whether we might be seeing a turn again towards greater isolationism. Some of the presidential candidates who have declared or not yet declared have hinted that there is kind of a neo-America first approach, and that is obviously getting a lot of attention elsewhere. And many uh, countries, many economies around the world are not in a position to say, uh, I want to take sides or I can take sides between the United States and China. This has been referred to as hedging. It's been referred to as basically making sure that as many economic avenues as possible are remaining open. Mm. Professor Mark, I want to move on to another country which also significant in Asia. I realize you just returned from visiting the country of Japan. And also, meanwhile, we realize according to the media, the current uh, Japanese Prime Minister Kushida, he also paid a visit to the country of Ukraine. Now, help us to understand how significant was for Kushida to pay a visit to Ukraine. And some says that it shows that different attitudes towards the war in Ukraine. So in other words, China seems to take in the side with Russia. But meanwhile, Japan is trying to send a message to say China is not the entire Asia and we're trying to make the smarter or better strategic moves. What do you say to that? Yeah, there is a lot of layers and symbolism here. For example, um, Prime Minister Kishida made his visit at the same time as uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping was meeting with Vladimir Putin. So there was a lot of comparison between the two visits. Prime Minister Kishida was also under a little bit of pressure to make the uh, kind of make the meeting with uh, the Ukrainian president because mm. uh, he was the last of the G7 leaders to do so. So there was a great deal of pressure to show G7 solidarity. But it also demonstrated, as you say, that Japan is not really following uh, any kind of perceived, like, quote-unquote, Asia view of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that Japan, uh, Korea, and others in East Asia are very much worried about, not only about Russia, but about China. And we're seeing, for example, greater contacts between the government of Japan, Korea, and NATO. This is likely to be uh, strengthened in the coming months. And it also really demonstrates the fact that Japan is starting to get very concerned about its uh, security milieu, especially if we're seeing a closer relationship between Moscow and Beijing. When we talk about Japan today, again, the news came out recently and it mentioned specifically that Kushida's plan to double defense spending over the next five years. And of course, that according to the media, it says Kushida is trying to modernize the military to better deter North Korea, Russia, and China. Now, Professor Mark, you're the expert. Help us to understand by increasing the, uh, the defense spending over the five years, how feasible is the plan to deter the threat from North Korea, Russia, and also other countries? Given the fact that today, again, Japan is facing some major critical, uh, we'll say, military crisis at this moment. So how should we make up that? 
Yes, I would say had this proposal, the doubling of the defense budget, been made, let's say, a decade ago or 15 years ago, I think it would have garnered quite a bit more political opposition than what we're seeing now. But the leadership of Abe Shinzo was quietly, quietly moving in that direction to talk about uh, reworking Japan's defense posture in light of the security challenges, both North Korea and China being top of the list. Now, I think uh, Kishida Fumio has a much easier time convincing many political constituents that, no, this is not 10 years ago. We need to make proper preparations to defend ourselves, not only because of the nature of the threats, but also the fact that many countries, including the United States, are doing the same. They are trying to mm. modernize their military and improve their spending to deal with these threats. It is going to be still very difficult, though, because, first of all, there's the question of whether an actual doubling of the budget is feasible economically. Mm. There is still going to be much debate between now and then about, okay, well, what is this going to do to Japan's foreign policy identity? Uh, there's been so much debate over the past few decades about whether Japan should become, quote-unquote, a normal country with a normal military. And there will be, very likely, still some opposition to that. But day by day, we are seeing more evidence that Japan's security situation is not as stable as it used to be. Like, just over the past 48 hours, there was an incident of North Korea testing an ICBM, mm. sending off a security warning throughout Hokkaido. So you don't need to go far to find evidence that things have changed. Well, but again, Professor Mark, when we look at the current Prime Minister, Kashida, truthfully, that too often, again, these days, we tend to compare with the, the predecessor, which is Shinzo Abe. Again, but experts believe, or some commentators believe, that compare with the progress that Abe made, Kashida seemed much weaker when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to territorial dispute or military defense. Now, what is your uh, opinion on that? Now, do you think it's fair to compare Kashida with Shinzo Abe these days? If so, how should we measure the progress between the two people? Yes, I would say that uh, Prime Minister Kashida has had to deal with a very complicated domestic situation, primarily economically. Mm. Japan is also facing a great deal of post-COVID um, reworking of its economic system, its trading system, and internal politics. Uh, Japan is only now pretty much opening up after, again, a very long period of isolation. And that is lead to a lot of discussion about, okay, what do we do under these kinds of circumstances? I do give Prime Minister Kishida credit. Like Many were writing his political epitaph not that long ago, that he was facing a great deal of uh, dissent within his own party. There was a lot of concerns about his perceived weakness, but he's been able to navigate some very, very difficult, uh, both domestic and international politics of late. So I think uh, I, would cautiously say, I would cautiously say that his uh, position has strengthened a little bit. Professor Mark, I want to move on to, uh, the, again, uh, regarding the country of Japan, now again based on the reports, that Japanese government efforts to build bilateral strategic partnership with other countries, specifically with Washington, and the goal is to deepen the uh, the ties or deepen the relationship because of the uh, the threat from the Chinese military today. Now, when we look at the Chinese military, now only that this this power it's creating much threat to the West, but also specifically going back to the uh, the region of Taiwan. Now, Professor Mark, help us to understand how concerning is the Chinese military today? It's not just about Taiwan, it's about influence, it's about this military grand plan under current leader Xi Jinping. What is your opinion on that? 
Okay. The first point is uh, we one kind of change that we're seeing in Japanese foreign and defense policy, and this began under Abe and it is being continued, that the amount of contact between Tokyo and Taipei is very significant, and it is understood that Japan would play a role uh, should Taiwan's security situation be further uh, threatened. Mm. The other issue, though, and this might become a little bit more complicated in light of the uh, Pentagon leaks, is that the United States has also been trying to encourage greater dialogue between Japan and South Korea, arguing that they need to put aside their uh, bilateral differences because they do have a common uh, set of security concerns in the form of both China and North Korea. Mm. Now, what is happening with China right now is it's continuing to develop its military. It is continuing to place a great deal more focus on expanding its presence in the East and South China Sea, becoming more active in the greater Pacific. A lot of attention is being paid to the recent um, security pact between China and the Solomon Islands. And it has provoked a counter response in the form of the AUKUS pact between the United States, UK and Australia. Mm. So we have a lot of finger pointing between China and Western states saying you're the one who has disrupted the situation, not us. Professor Mark, again, I got two more questions before letting you go. I'm very glad you mentioned the uh, the, uh, the topic regarding South China Sea. Let's bring the last country into our conversation, which is the Philippines. Nowadays, everyone is saying that the Philippines today plays an absolutely indispensable role when we come to territorial dispute, specifically related to South China Sea. But meanwhile, given the fact that today... The, Philipp uh, the newly elected Filipino president also paid a visit to China, but on this South China Sea issue, he was very soft because he was interviewed multiple times by the state-owned media while his visitation in China. Now, from your perspective, how do we understand the attitude from the Filipino government today regarding South China Sea? Is this as a message for Xi Jinping to understand, or is this as a message for the world to understand? Yes. So the Philippines has been a major player in the South China Sea dispute, and it is a claimant uh, over some of the islets which are under dispute. What has been happening in Manila, though, is we're seeing a very interesting almost pendulum effect when it comes to foreign and defense policy mm. towards the United States, a little bit more towards China under Duterte. And now we're seeing the pendulum swing back again. We are seeing increased um, security contacts between the United States and the Philippines. But as you correctly point out, Manila is also being very careful not to overly alienate China. Mm. And that really goes back to what I was saying before. Many countries in Southeast Asia, ASEAN, are really trying to work out some kind of equilibrium between the two great powers, trying to avoid creating a situation where they have to overtly take sides. A lot of this is economic as well. This is another region which is still having to deal with a great deal of economic uncertainty. So I would say what the Philippines is trying to do is to... Uh, rework relations with the United States to say, okay, we are now interested in mending ties that were very severely uh, damaged a few years ago, while trying to avoid uh, being directly targeted by China as a country that is seen to be too close to the West. Professor Mark, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to the West. Again, as you mentioned before today, U.S., political situation is also standing at the crossroads. Again, we don't know next year who will be the next president, but given the fact today that polarization is absolutely the center of this issue. 
Now, given the fact that today, when we look at the foreign policy from the West towards China, number one, it's rather ambiguous, and number two, everyone is walking on the ice, a thin ice. Now, from your perspective, how much does China still matter today for the U.S. politics when the next person, whoever the person will be, running to be the next president, and how should we understand the threat from China, is it just economy, or is it just technology, or it's time we need to reshape the narrative of the relationship? So, two points here. First of all, as I said before, we have、um, current and potential Republican candidates who are flirting to varying degrees with the idea of isolationism.、Mm. That the United States still continues to overextend itself、uh, in regards to its military power, its、uh, diplomatic. Um, priorities, and that there needs to be kind of a return to addressing domestic issues. This is obviously a great worry in Europe, in East Asia.、Uh, should that actually come about, and should it become an actual campaign issue? In regards to U.S.-China, contact between the two countries has gone down a lot. Part of that was obviously due to COVID,、mm. but also part of that is just concerns that have been raised in both countries that. There is a rivalry, and we're seeing this rivalry not only in regards to economics and military, but also, as you point out, technology. All kinds of concerns about semiconductors. All kinds of concerns about access to rare earths and strategic materials.、Mm. And this is kind of adding to almost a vicious circle of distrust, which both countries are contributing to right now. Now, one question which has been brought up by the Biden administration and by commentators is that: Is there any way to bring in guardrails to say that okay, this is going to be a very difficult relationship for the short term,、mm. but is there still a way of keeping certain levels of communication open, understanding that the U.S. and China do have similar concerns? For example, the environment. For example,、uh, the state of the global economy. Is there any way to at least rebuild the relationship to a stable level? But with the, like I said, with election season coming up, and I imagine that China is going to be used as a、uh, kind of as a speaking point as to dealing with questions of American security. I really wonder whether we're going to get a serious dialogue about China, or are we just going to get more propaganda? Well, again, Professor Mark, I have to say that I am also wondering the same thing: Are we going to get a serious dialogue between the U.S. and China, or we're just going to use? Uh, China as a political soundbite. Well, again, we're only again in this fourth months of the year, and there's still a long way to go. When we look at the U.S.-China relationship and look at how China is going to play out for the countries in Europe, but again, China today is not going anywhere, and the Xi Jinping is going to continue to make greater effort to generate political and also social economic noises. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Professor Mark Lenton. Again, Professor Lenton teaches in political science, including international relations and comparative politics. Professor Lenton, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. It's always been a pleasure speaking to you, and we love to have you back on the show as we continue to follow the news around the world. So, thank you so much for doing this.